2: Welcome. Welcome to what? Well, to the fall, of course, that first. Second, welcome to the nook. Come in, doff your gear, find a seat, find a chum, dip some treats, pour a drink. Then, know that you are welcome to tales to terrify. Don't be shy. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and you'll not be hurt. Not by me. You shall have an excellent evening. We have it planned. First, Kevin Lucia will take us on a tour through some various literary flats, apartments, domiciles of horror in this early fall version of Horror 101. Then we'll have a tale that marked the debut of Mr. Matt Cowan's wonderfully dark and brooding literary place, the Talbot Forest, as it appeared in his 2008 tale, The Collective of Black Reach. More anon. So, settled. First things first, as you know, I will ask you to go to the Tales to Terrify webpage, tales dot terrifycom and make a contribution or a commitment in the form of a subscription, so that we may continue in our dark ways here in the Nook. Bandwidth is not free, you know. And, ah, I must not forget to say, please and thank you so much. Then again, please, stop by our Facebook page and like us. And, while there... Let us know what you think of a late November, maybe early December, virtual convention of horror, live from here in the Nook. Authors, readers, scholars, narrators, interviews, et all. Let us know what you'd like to see or hear for your admission fee. And yes, see was intentional, because part of it will be visual. It will cost about ten pounds, I'm told, uh, whatever that is in your world. So, let us know. It'll be about a five-or-so-hour gathering. And when you do mention what you'd like to see or hear, please, as you've heard so often in school, be specific. And one more quick note. Do you remember Martin Munt? We began life here at Tales to Terrify with a Martin Munt tale to kind of jumpstart our hearts back almost two years ago now. Since then, Marty has been back. He's spoken mellifluously to us. He's done reviews, stories, commentary, and so forth. I would like to send you to Amazon or to your ebook store of choice and ask you to type in Martin M-U-N-D-T. Much of what Marty has written is now available for pretty reasonable prices. Look at the Kindle cost for the magnificently expanded edition of Marty's The Crawling Abattoir. $2.99, ye So stop by. Martin Munt. Just a suggestion, of course. Uh, That's Munt. M-U-N-D-T. First name, Martin. And now, to bungle forth into the evening, here is Kevin Lucia with Horror 101, in which we will examine the apartment in horror tales. Kevin?
3: Chandell's first glimpse of the brownstone had a sobering effect and left her with a sense of pervading gloom. The building, made of dark, streaked brick, sat quietly back, recessed between two newly renovated structures, making it appear all the more run down. The column that held up the railing was cracked, ready to fall at the slightest touch, excessive neglect and deterioration were the building's principal features. Shandell paused at the foot of the steps. Was it the building's obvious shabbiness that had unnerved her? She could imagine the bleak, echoing hallways, and a kind of dark wood, and the high ceilings another color, maybe a faded olive green. She was compelled to scan more closely the face of this ancient structure. Windows, long and narrow, were surrounded by remnants of decomposed vines, vacant, eye-like windows, black with soot, that almost entirely sealed off the outside world. She followed a crack, which extended from the roof of the building and made its scar-like way down the wall in a zigzag direction until it vanished just above the second-story windows. The only color visible to her eyes was a faint glimmer of stained glass, whose distorted Gothic images seemed to dance in place directly above the front door. The two separate glass panels were scarlet, a deep blood red. Staring harder at these strange images, she felt an atmosphere peculiar to the immediate vicinity an atmosphere which had no affinity with the neighborhood, but which reeked of the dull, sluggish reality of the two sisters who lived within. A world condensed to a small plot of real estate, with narrow windows, at which a stray face sometimes appeared, a bodiless face, detached, mysterious, above the thin line of blackened brick that formed the window ledges. Chandel was reminded of those eerie paintings of little orphan Annie, big eyes in horrid yellow light which threw everything into silhouette. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales to Terrify. I again am your host, Kevin Lucia. And for tonight's installment of Horror 101, as we travel along the house strand in the horror genre, we're going to be looking at apartment buildings. Haunted apartment buildings, cursed apartment buildings, that sort of thing. Tonight's features are The Brownstone by Kenny yulo The Sentinel by Jeffrey Convitz, and the seminal classic Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin. Before we continue forward, however, we should note that like a lot of works in the horror genre, these books could be cross-referenced as other strands of horror. As I mentioned about a year and a half ago when I began this, I developed some categories, the house, the ghost, the beast, the weird, the occult detective, simply so I could move forward, so I could organize my own reading. A lot of these works could very easily... Be cross-referenced. For example, many of the haunted house stories that I've read and that I will read could also be ghost stories. These books could very easily be cross-referenced as religious horror because they feature themes of possession, satanic possession, uh, cursed you know portals, things like that. Um, I will be featuring a special segment on religious horror uh, later on uh, in the series. But again, anyone who's read these novels and is hearing this podcast, we do need to acknowledge that they very easily could be called religious horror as well. Before we begin, a little bit about apartment buildings themselves and and why they can make effective settings for horror stories. We've talked a lot about how houses make effective settings uh, for horror stories. Because houses are supposed to be sanctuary, they're supposed to be a place where we can feel vulnerable and safe, so we flip that and we invert that and suddenly make the place that is ours, uh, the place that we are supposed to live in and feel safe, we flip that and invert it uh, and make it a threatening, malevolent presence. Or we build a house. We're the ones that's supposed to shape the house. But in a horror story, sometimes the house can exert influences on us or feed off of us. Um, especially in the case of, you know, we were talking about, in particular, Ann sidney's comments on the house next door. And that, you know, especially for a wife, in that domestic air that she is supposed to be the ruler of the house it is supposed to be her palace her safe place and for that to be haunted or cursed is, is a major transgression as to what we expect apartment buildings when you think about it are so transient um, very often we have very little idea of the history behind these apartment houses so anything could have literally happened in these spaces before we uh, before we moved in there Um, murders um, people sick and dying um, unspeakable practices um, some apartment buildings the real estate agent maybe will give you a detailed background about them and probably today especially because we're living in such an information glutted age you know where we have carfax.com and things like that that's interestingly enough is probably not necessarily i haven't been apartment hunting for a really long time so i wouldn't know um, but probably in today's information-glutted society, that's probably something that's a little bit different because we're so. As consumers now, we can just Google and find detailed histories of everything. But especially during the 70s and the 80s and 90s, it could be very easy for a real estate agent to kind of cover the history uh, of the brownstone or the apartment building or wherever it is you're going to live. So there's a greater sense of uncertainty in moving into an apartment building. You know, who lived there before? There's a nice line from 1408, the movie, where John Cusack's character is recording his thoughts about hotel rooms. And don't worry, we're going to progress along to haunted hotels and haunted hotel rooms as well in this series. But he's recording his thoughts about this hotel room and saying things like, hotels rooms are naturally creepy places. You know, who died in this bed before you? Who lay here sick and in fever? So in some ways with apartment buildings, we've got that same vibe because they're so transient. We don't know... What happened here before? How many people have stayed here? What type of people stayed here? So, in some ways, they make excellent, um, excellent settings for horror stories, because I guess, I guess of that sense of instability—you know, we just we just don't—we're unsure of what happened here. Why did the former tenants leave, and you know, that sort of thing? Also, about apartment buildings, when you think of the fellow tenants, you know, your fellow boarders, it's like a haunted town or haunted village kind of in a microcosm, if you consider a haunted apartment building or a cursed apartment building or what have you, and the people who live around you as manifestations of that building, this is an added element to that uncertainty because we don't know who we're moving in next to, who are these people who are living on this floor. Maybe they're really nice neighbors, the type of people who will bring you a cup of sugar when you need it, or would be more than happy to lend a hand or, or invite you over to dinner. Or maybe your neighbors are part of a satanic cult that's hoping to inspire in you a new ritual that you'll give birth to Satan's kid. You don't know. Um, perhaps your tenements, your fellow tenants are demons or perhaps the ladies who are renting it out are witches who would like to possess you. So, that's another aspect I think that kind of adds that I that heightens that sense of, this is home, this is where we're supposed to live. But there's a sense of uncertainty because we don't know who these people are who live above us, or who lives below us, or who lives next to us. Right. Again, especially in the '70s and '80s and '90s, when there was a much probably greater sense of privacy and people who are cloistered away in their apartment buildings. Um, I mean, very, could very li- easily be living into an axe murderer next door and we'd never know so I think it would be interesting especially with these three books to look at especially with I would have to say with Rosemary's Baby uh, which the building itself is less haunted and the fact that you these, a couple have moved into the space that's threatening because of the tenants who are living around them, so they're kind of a manifestation um, of the uh, the idea of moving into a haunted or cursed space. The other two, the sentinel and the brownstone, that's more of a kind of a classic, this apartment building's haunted, the, the, the landlord's haunted or cursed or evil, than necessarily uh, Rosemary's Baby, where in that case the tenants are the, the malevolent factor of the building. Our first selection tonight is the sentinel by Jeffrey Convance, which was also made into a movie by Universal. It was published in 1977. In The Sentinel, successful model Allison Parker returns to New York after her father's death. She's looking for a place to live, and she finds an incredible deal in the paper, which, again, this seems to be, through all three of these, you could also say there's that idea of it's too good to be true. So they all they are... are protagonists in all of these books also find ads in the paper that are just oh, this is so incredibly cheap. A lot like Burnt Offerings by Robert Marsko where it's like, this is so incredibly cheap how could you possibly rent it for this for this little? Obviously as the saying goes, it's too good to be true. But in any case uh, Allison rents this apartment uh, and for the most part she really likes it. Uh, very, Very quickly though she learns that she has some fellow tenants that are very odd. She has an, uh, an odd man, man named Mr. Chazin, who has a cat named Jezebel, who it's a weird cat, doesn't act quite like a cat, and he treats it kind of like a person. There's a weird lesbian couple who lives downstairs, where she has kind of a really threatening encounter with, almost kind, of, and they act very strange, almost that they're not exactly there. Um, there's also another couple, a, a married couple who they seem to have this odd sense of displacement. Um, And there's this wonderful scene where Allison gets invited to a birthday party for the Jezebel, the cat, you know, in Mr. Uh, Chazin's room upstairs. Uh, And it's this very bizarre setting with those two lesbians and the married couple, Mr. Chazin and the cat, having a birthday party for a cat. And these are her neighbors. At the beginning, she believes Mr. Chazin is just kind of eccentric. And with the exception of her weird, freaky lesbian couple, which there's a scene there where they they actually almost assault her. For the most part, she thinks her her fellow tenants are just eccentric, and that's it. However, the longer Allison lives in her apartment building, she begins noticing some ill effects. She starts having headaches, nausea, bouts of weakness and fainting, and she also feels as as if her vision is starting to suffer. Also at night, of course, she starts hearing footsteps dragging footsteps in the apartment building above her even though the the real estate agent swears that there's nobody who lives there and that room is empty she becomes convinced that there is a there's somebody up there walking at night another curiosity in this apartment building is that according to the real estate agent the only other person who actually lives there is a priest, Father Halloran. And this priest sits in a room several several stories above Allison's and seems to always be sitting at the window staring out at the world. The real estate agent says he's an old retired priest. He's blind. You'll never have to worry about him. But of course, this works upon Allison. Every time she comes home, there's that priest staring out at the window. What is he looking at? Is he looking at me? Is he got kind of a creeper vibe but um, all he does is seems to sit there and stare as the novel progresses allison's health begins to deteriorate she has several attacks while she's doing photo shoots Uh, she starts having hallucinations and starts having nightmares along the way which is i think an element of every good horror story some of allison's baggage starts getting unpacked where we learn that she fled home as a child uh, because she walked in on her father having an affair. And after that, she tried to commit suicide. We also end up learning that Allison's somewhat unsympathetic boyfriend, and that's one of the weak parts of this novel, for the most part, it's a good, excellent, fun read, kind of a very you know cheesy 70s but well-written horror vibe. But unfortunately, her boyfriend, Michael's is largely unsympathetic throughout the whole novel. He's got a little twist in his past, too, because then we learn that Allison had an affair with him, and he may or may not have killed his wife somewhere along the way, and that she uh, attempted suicide once again after that. So... This baggage starts being unloaded and we start learning more about this. So in a nice twist, we start wondering ourselves as readers, can Allison be trusted? Is she experiencing all this phenomenon in this apartment building uh, because there's something actually there or is she slowly coming apart at the seams? This becomes complicated when after her experience with the lesbian couple, um, she's met all these weird, strange folks and one day, as she's going up to her apartment building, her apartment, she's invited in for tea by this not elderly, but say middle-aged uh, couple, and she's actually almost accosted by them and assaulted, maybe even almost sexually assaulted. And she barely escapes, you know, from the uh, apartment building unscathed. When she goes to speak to the real estate agent to lodge a complaint, the real estate agent shows up and says. You're crazy. Nobody else lives in this apartment building. You're here by yourself with Father Hallahan. And Of course, this is after meeting Mr. Chazman and Jezebel, after the party, after meeting all of these people. The real estate agent comes over, unlocks the door where this crazy lesbian couple is supposed to live, and we find a room that is filled with junk and dust It is has very obviously not been lived in for years which, of course, throws Allison for another spin because she's met these people. She's gone to a party with these people. These people nearly assaulted her. Now the real estate agent is saying, nobody lives here but you and the priest. So again, we begin wondering what's going on here. Is Allison hallucinating these things? Is the house haunted? Or the apartment building haunted? Um, And she's convinced the one piece of evidence she still has that lets us know maybe that she's not uh, hallucinating all of this is the very beginning when she met the kindly old eccentric Mr. Chazan. He gave her a photograph of himself, a very old photograph, which even though everyone has disappeared, this old photograph is still sitting on her mantel her fireplace. Um, so somehow... This man was here, even though, again, the real estate agent takes her up to the room that's supposed to be Mr. Cheson's room. When they open it up, it is, again, appears to have been unlived in for decades, maybe, full of dust. Um, so, But she has this one photo, a uh, kind of as her proof that Mr. Cheson does exist. As Allison's health deteriorates, her unsympathetic boyfriend, Michael, finally has to admit that something is going wrong here, and they start... they start searching for the owners of the apartment building, the real estate agent. Um, They start tracking down, uh, they track down old editions of the newspaper to try to find an ad. Suddenly, mysteriously, they can no longer find the ad that brought Allison to this building to begin with. Michael tracks down the real estate agent to her office only to find an empty office and neighbors, like the, the proprietors next door to this empty office, say they haven't seen the real estate agent. For several days, then the attempts to contact the owner of the apartment building also falls through. Along the way, Michael becomes very interested in the lone occupant of the apartment building, a Father Hallahan. He visits the local diocese, and through some subterfuge, kind of stealing some records along the way. Even though the uh, people in charge at the uh, diocese claim they they know no, they don't know of any Father Hallahan that he exists. Michael steals some files, that leads him to believe that there is something happening here. He discovers information about a Father Hallerhan, and then some other man, and is able to ferret out that whoever this other man was, he ended up becoming Father Hallerhan. Then he discovers it's so there's matching, you know, birth and death dates. Right, that, that there's no birth date for Father Hallerhan but the corresponding death date of this other man and Father Hallahan's ordination you know, uh, correspond. Then he finds Allison's information and information about a Sister Therese. And again, Allison's quote-unquote death date, of course she's alive, so how does she have a death date, corresponds with the ordination of this Sister Therese. So Michael believes that for whatever reason... The Catholic Church has this conspiracy to replace Father Halloran as this sentinel in this apartment building with Therese. So again, we again, when you're talking about it, uh, this is a haunted apartment building slash religious horror. So we bring in this religious conspiracy into the story as well. What we end up discovering is that, ironically, because our podcast is entitled "This Apartment is Hell." This apartment literally is hell. It turns out to be one of many gateways or portals to hell. Since the dawn of time, God has appointed a sentinel to watch over and protect the portal and make sure it stays closed. Also, since the dawn of time, a cast of demons cluster at the mouth of this portal, trying to force it open. That, of course, is where Mr. Chazan and the lesbian couple, and these fellow tenants that Allison thought were her neighbors comes in because they are the demons uh, that are there at the very end to try to uh, force the opening of this portal. And Allison has been doomed, chosen, whatever, to be God's next protector of this portal. In the end, Allison's boyfriend, Michael, his uh, efforts to thwart this plot and save her fails. He is killed in the ensuing spiritual battle at the end. The priest, the archbishop, or whatever you want to call him, the guy who initially denied Father Hallahan's existence, ends up showing up by the end of the novel with Father Hallahan to transfer this like silver crucifix from Father Hallahan to Alison Parker. Alison takes her place at the, at the chair watching the window, and we end the story with a new couple... Looking for a room in in an apartment. The only quirk is this old nun who sits at the window and stares out at the world. And of course this leads to a sequel by Jeffrey Conn called The Guardian. This has got some old nun in this brownstone looking out at the world. And we presume, I've not read The Guardian, but we presume that we're going to have another retreatment of this whole guarding the portal of hell story. Our next two selection, we're going to review kind of side by side because they have very similar setups. So there are a little, little few differences along the way, um, and that's the Brownstone by Kenny Elo and Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin. In both of these books, we have newly married couples. Ironically enough, both husband protagonists are active in Hollywood, you know, actors and producers. So there is kind of that vibe of, you know, that, I don't want to say the corruption of Hollywood necessarily, but both of our male protagonists in both of these stories are very open to suggestion and corruption because of their desire to succeed in Hollywood. We're not really in Hollywood, I guess, because we're talking about the Broadway stage, but simply in acting, in theater in Hollywood, in entertainment, because they have these ambitions to succeed, both of them are left very open to manipulation and corruption. Also, interestingly enough, in both of these novels, the female protagonists, the wives, are pregnant or get pregnant along the way. So again, we have moving into a place, we vulnerable, we're pregnant, you know, Will our pregnancies be, you know, at the mercy of the forces that are controlling this place? Um, This is also an interesting similarity between the two of these. And here's a side note that I'm sure anyone who's read a lot of this horror, or even today, this happens a lot today, it's very interesting reading in these old paperbacks how on the inside cover they'll instantly compare their book to other classics. You've read The Brownstone. You've read Rosemary's Baby. You've read this now. Yada, yada, yada. You know, comparing that book to, uh, I think, in fact, yes, in the inside of the Sentinel cover, it says, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Other, now the ultimate intrusion of evil, The Sentinel. So, and that's probably, it's very common even in books today to kind of tag, you know, other similar Books, But it seems, especially in the 70s and 80s, I see that a lot on the inside of these covers, where, oh, wow, someone came out with a possession book, now I'm going to write my possession book. You know, whether or not that's the authors or the publishers that do that, but it's interesting when you start reading a lot of work that you see that reoccurring trait. In any case, in the brownstone, from which I read this podcast introduction, the excerpt, we have a young actress, Shandell Knight, and her director husband, Justin, they're about ready to take off to Hollywood. They're about ready to sell their old place. Let's go to Hollywood. Let's seek our fame and fortune. At the last minute, lo and behold, they come across this old brownstone apartment that's you know owned by these two elderly, reclusive, kind of strange sisters. And in a windfall, they offer the apartment the whole floor rent-free for the first six months. Once again... Ooh, too good to be true of course Chandel also learns oh i'm pregnant around the same time they move into the brownstone and immediately and this is where rosemary's baby is the strongest selection of all three of these of course because that one moves with, with much more subtlety you know the plot is handled with with much more care immediately in the brownstone as soon as they move in um Schendel, as she's redecorating the apartment, she notices things like closets that seem to be papered over and closed and locked and parts of the apartment where, again, we have that classic, well, I wonder, why was this, you know, how was this done here before? Who lived here before me? She immediately notices a change in her husband, who becomes a very, and again, it's very similar, like the Sentinel, the husband does not come off well in this novel. Uh, he instantly becomes very distant and very uncaring and uh, very petulant. Uh, he becomes obsessed with photography in the basement. Also, seems to be developing a very unhealthy attraction, connection with Magdalena, one of the old sisters who lives in the apartment above them. And as the novel progresses, like the Sentinel, a lot like the Sentinel, Chandel because they have hallucinations. She hears a bell ringing in the background. Their cat, very common in these stories, does not like the apartment. It never likes the apartment, and and often runs at highs and is acting strangely. Um, They have problems with electrical outages for some reason, lights going out, things like that. And as the novel takes shape, we also are treated to, and this is an interesting thing, it's a craft thing, but whenever you have a novel that just has the protagonist's point of view, for example, in The Sentinel, it's just Alison Parker for the most part. We get Michael. We get uh, a detective. But we don't ever have the evils Point of view. One of the downfalls of the pro- the balance just from my point of view, is a lot of the suspense is dulled because we very quickly realize that the sisters are practicing witches and they're doing satanic rituals to a demon and calling him forth and trying to possess Chandel. Uh, you know, and also wooing her husband. It's kind of creepy. You know, eighty year old, but, but of course, again, the eighty year old woman makes herself look young. Starts working and in, into into her, her husband's mind. Unfortunately. That lessens the impact of the novel a little bit, and that may just be me, but because we have insight into the the evil forces' point of view, that really drops the suspense. We kind of already know what's going to happen here, and this does happen by the end of the novel. Although Iulu does try to kind of throw us off into thinking maybe that Chandel is schizophrenic, you know, because after she sets fire to the old brownstone and kills her husband at the end, she ends up in an asylum. But when she leaves the asylum, there's still that haunting voice in her head. We are left with a little bit of, is she possessed? Is she schizophrenic? But we have that vibe. Again, these evil landlords, renters, seducing a young couple who are eager and desperate. And then once they are there, they take advantage of them and, you know, possess them. Our final selection of this podcast is probably the one that's the most well-known, the classic out of the collection. That's Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin. And again, we have a very interesting setup here where Rosemary Woodhouse and her husband, Guy, who's a struggling actor, uh, end up moving into this apartment building. Once again... Classic staple of the horror story. They learn of a disturbing history in this apartment building of witchcraft and murder and satanic rituals. Of course, they overlook this. Why? We're we're not superstitious. We don't believe in these things. We're going to move in. And very initially, and again, this was probably what makes, makes this novel the greatest out of all three of them, is that Rosemary's neighbors, in the beginning, are just very maybe a little eccentric and maybe like a little like you know. Possibly annoying and kind of may bug you a little bit, and they're always there, but really they seem very, very harmless, very solicitous, very helpful. The alarming, possibly, in the very beginning, the neighbors that they become close to, uh, they have like kind of an adopted daughter who very early in the novel just decides to kill herself and jump out a window. So we're kind of like, hmm. Gee, I wonder why that happened. Of course, they trot out a history of uh, depression and things like that, and then, you know, reasonably explain it. Soon after they move in to their new apartment building, Gary has a theatrical rival uh, who's they're vying for the same part, and his rival suddenly becomes blind. And after this moment, Gary becomes like a shooting star, you know, which, again, there's there's a pact, right? At some point, their neighbors have made their desires known to Gary. Gary, of course, as a sucker that he is, decides to accept it so he can become a superstar in theater and his career um, prospers. Meanwhile, after several months, and these, the attendants are working on them, kind of working on them and working, worming their way past their defenses and earning their trust, Rosemary has hallucinations. Some very bad ones, especially one where she's, you know, taken advantage of by this gigantic, horned, cloven-hoofed creature, which, a.k.a. Satan, and she ends up discovering, after receiving some warnings from a friend, who then, of course, becomes mysteriously ill and falls into a coma, Rosemary discovers that all of her neighbors are not necessarily eccentric they don't have quaint little quaint little home remedies because they've been giving her all these things because she she becomes pregnant of course not long after her strange dream and they keep giving her these weird Remedies with these uh, weird roots and herbs and things like that, and she thinks that's just because you know, you know, they're eccentric. They're they've got little home remedies. No, she discovers that they're all part of a satanic coven, and of course, she mistakes the reason why. She's thinking they're gonna got me pregnant, and and they're gonna sacrifice the baby. Of course, when the baby's born, she then realizes that no. They want the Antichrist, and this baby's not human. Um, and I basically had sex with Satan, and now I'm. You know, Rosemary's baby is uh, going to be the Antichrist, and the story ends with Rosemary, kind of, for the sake of the child, accepting the situation and 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 you know accepting her son, whatever it may be, at least to care for it um, as a mother. The idea that it hurt at least thinking yes it may be part Satan but it's also part human too. And that's how our story ends. And again this one is out of the two other selections this has
0: A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
3: Less of the building actually being cursed vibe, but what this really plays on is the idea that these people we've lived, we've moved in with in this building, so the building is you know itself is kind of like an environment. Can't trust them. Who are they? You know they. In some ways, they're extensions of the building, but this, in this case, unlike the other two, the building itself has less of a malevolent. It's more the people in the building, and we can't trust them, and we can't trust, you know, their intentions, and they, they have malevolent plans for us. And of course, her choosing to stay with the baby results in the sequel, *Son of Rosemary*. Um, obviously, we will learn what happens to her demonic child, baby. Well, that concludes uh, this edition of Horror 101. Um, Once again, thank you for listening. If you have a chance to look us up on Facebook, it is Studying Horror on Facebook. My recommendations for this evening, Horror 101 recommends two works. One, ironically, in an apartment building by Sarah Langan, Audrey's Door. Very similar trope where a, a struggling writer, actress, moves into an apartment building an apartment building with a history of suicide and murder uh, and begins again to just dis- to experiencing strange hallucinations um and there's audrey's door you know um i'm gonna highly recommend it also no doors no windows by joe schreiber in this again we have a classic uh tale of a struggling writer who's unhappy with his um and he goes back to his childhood town um, you know, uh, where his mother had died in a terrible fire, and he starts uncovering secrets about his family. The least of which, or the greatest of which, is that there's a house that his father built. Um, and when he goes out to the house, something is wrong with the house. One thing that's really nice about no doors, no windows, very Lovecraftian vibe, because the house geometrically inside is wrong. You know, the corners seem smoothed and rounded. It doesn't seem to be natural. And of course, this house inspires our main character to finish his father's manuscript, which he discovers, you know, and kind of giving him you know, unholy inspiration to uh, finish his written work. Once again, uh, I want to thank you uh, for listening, and I uh, hope you'll tune in next month. And as always, keep reading.
2: Thank you, Kevin. Once again, Horror 101 has cost me money. I became intrigued and just had to pick up a copy of Ken Ulo's The Brownstone. Well, that's a good thing, I suppose. One can always use another book, another set of viewpoints on living between floors. Hmm? Yeah. Well, once again... I look forward to October's talk. I'll start saving for it now. And now, fiction. Our tale tonight comes from Indiana author Matt Callan. Matt says his love for the horror genre stretches beyond his earliest childhood memories, and that, as a tot, he stopped having nightmares after realizing he was enjoying them. Too much. As his primary literary influences, Matt cites a rather distinguished band of practitioners of the dark and fictive arts Ramsay Campbell, M. R. James, Algernon Blackwood, Fritz Leiber, H. P. Lovecraft. Matt Cowan's short story, Here He Comes a Wandering won the Pod of Horror 2009 Christmas Horror Story Contest. You can hear that on episode number 58 at the Pod of Horror. Matt's had stories appear in the Indiana Horror Anthologies for 2011 and 2012, as well as in Indiana Science Fiction Anthology 2011 and Indiana Crime Review 2013. His short story, Christmas Wine, will appear in Grinning Skull presses' forthcoming charity anthology, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The book will benefit the Elizabeth Glasser Pediatric AIDS Foundation. It would be so easy to go on and on and on, but voice, restrain thyself, go, become lost, you children of the night, in the collective of black reach.
4: It was the dream in his uncle's cabin that led Kenneth Withlow to the book. He had gone there to spend a week alone. Hidden deep in the secluded section of the massive Talbot Forest, it would be all but impossible for anyone to find him. Uncle Vincent was gone, reported missing over a year ago after failing to show up for work. There was no call, no note. He never even picked up his last week's paycheck. He just vanished. Eventually, he was given up for dead. Uncle Vincent had been on Ken's mind quite a bit lately. Memories of the good times of his youth spent at the cabin with his uncle kept replaying in his mind. Uncle Vincent taking him on long walks through forest trails that surrounded the cabin to commune with nature, as he liked to say. Often they would go swim or fish in Willow Green Pond on hot summer days. The constant reminders of those days went on for about a month before Ken finally decided to take a week's vacation and travel there. He hoped to stay at the cabin would get him back to feeling like he wasn't just sleepwalking through his life. A few years ago, Uncle Vincent had given Ken his own set of keys. You and I are the only two who have interest in the place, he had told Ken that day. We're the only ones who can see the magic contained there, deep in the heart of Talbot Forest. The drive took several hours with the last spent negotiating a narrow, heavily wooded dirt road through the forest. Rich smells of oak and pine trees seeped through the car vents. A sea of green tree limbs swayed in welcome as he drove along their borders. A narrow, rutted trail led to a small clearing where the cabin stood. Its walls were dull, gray, and weather-beaten, showing its age and neglect. A set of murky windows stained dark by tree sap peered out from either side of its single rotting door. Ken pulled his car to the rear of the cabin and got out, stretching his stiff legs. The ground was layered with thousands of pine needles, fallen from the trees that always seemed impossibly tall to him. Stacked up behind the cabin were several pieces of chopped firewood. They were blackened and covered in a thick layer of spiderwebs. A lone, rusty axe jutted up from a large chopping stump. The clearing did not reach far before being absorbed by the swell of trees beyond. Inside, sunlight was barely able to penetrate the sap-blackened windows. Two rooms made up the entire cabin. The largest room held a fireplace, a moth-even couch, several wooden chairs, and a dusky oaken table, stacked high with an assortment of fishing and hunting gear. Ken smiled when he noticed his uncle's old hunting night amidst it. It had been one of his uncle's most prized possessions. The side room contained a bed, a dresser, and a narrow closet. A cluster of old clothes lay piled in one corner. Ken spent the rest of the day straightening things up enough to get settled. There was no electricity, so he sorted through the wood pile until he found some good pieces for burning. That night he put new sheets on the bed before laying down to read. He enjoyed the sounds of the forest that wafted in from the windows that he had forced open. The hooting of the owls, the fluttering of wings, the chirping of crickets, and most of all, the wind through the trees. He read for an hour before falling asleep. The next morning, Ken awoke groggy. He had dreamt about his uncle. Most of the dream was hazy, but he remembered they had been walking through the forest. He tried to recall what they had spoken about, but it eluded him. The image of his uncle's face, full of concern, remained clear in his mind. Perhaps wherever he was, his uncle knew what a mess Ken's life had become. His recent divorce from Tina and the subsequent uneasiness he felt from their mutual friends left him feeling like he'd been excommunicated. He wasn't interested in talking about his feelings either, as some of his co-workers had suggested. Now, only his daughter, Alice, cared for him, and Tina had custody of her most of the time. After a quick breakfast, he dressed and went outside. The sun shone bright through the breaks in the trees. He told his co-workers the primary reason he wanted to stay at the cabin was to explore the forest, but really it was seclusion. Ken was going to take one of his uncle's favorite paths when he stumbled upon the vague remnants of a trail he didn't recognize. The trail was overgrown with weeds and underbrush, but had to have been made by something heading to or from his uncle's cabin. He decided to follow it. After hiking 45 minutes, Ken spotted a clearing a few feet off the trail. "'Looks like a good spot for a break,' he said to himself, leaving the path and moving toward it. At the center of the clearing stood a large, misshapen husk of a tree. It was thick, but stood just six feet tall, blackened, and dead. It looked to have some sort of infestation. Protruding out of its center was a large split that looked vaguely organic. It was white like dead flesh a stark contrast with the blackness of the rest of the tree. He guessed it to be a fungus seeping up from a deep internal cavity. At first, the tree gave him the impression of something unnatural and obscene, but it riveted his attention so much the feeling soon faded. A band of thin but taller trees formed the surrounding outer circle, as though they were attendants of this infected tree. You're a creepy-looking fellow, aren't you? Ken said running his fingers along the tree's wooden hide. While hiking, he'd been unable to shake the loneliness that hung over him, but since moving into the clearing, an intense feeling of peacefulness washed it all away. For the first time in months, he didn't feel alone. Thoughts of Tina and his estranged friends were forgotten. He felt that perhaps he could be part of something great, do important things. Maybe he did matter. He sat in the clearing for a long time before reluctantly deciding to head back. It was late by the time Ken returned to the cabin. He read for a while before going to sleep. That's when he had the dream. In it, he found himself leaving the cabin and traveling down the tree path. A twilight sun drifted from the sky. Wind funneling through the trees blew his face like a breath of something vast. The further he went... The more a damp smell of rain began to thicken on the cool breeze that swept over him. The sun completed its descent, plunging the forest into darkness. He moved along the path to the clearing at an inhumanly fast rate. He halted a few feet from the gnarled center tree in silence, observing it for a time. Then it began to pulse. The white fungus cavity became lined with purple veins. Ken got the vague impression that the tree's huge gaping crevice Was shifting together, as though it were an enormous mouth chewing on something. Feelings of peace and acceptance flowed through the tree into Ken. A spasm rippled through the trunk, followed by a gurgling sound from somewhere within. Then the mouth opened, spewing forth a thick cloud of black insects. They fell to the ground, a mass of swarming bugs Ken couldn't identify. The throng surged toward the trail and disappeared. They stayed together the whole time, acting as though they were formed of a single entity. When Ken returned his attention to the tree, he noticed the insects had dislodged something from inside it. At its base sat an oversized book, whose cover was made of wood. Ken reached down and picked it up. A set of words had been etched into it. Black. Reach. Ken awoke, the dream fresh in his mind. He got up, dressed Fixed breakfast and thought about what he should do that day. He wasn't sure he wanted to return to the forest just yet. The dream had disturbed him and he was becoming concerned with his own mental health. He was just finishing breakfast when he noticed some writing on a discarded envelope on the table. He picked it up. It read file within. Several other letters were scrawled unconnected around the edges of the envelope. The letters were thick and upraised, but looked to be in his uncle's handwriting. He was trying to figure out what it meant when his cell phone rang. It startled him at first, as his phone service had been sporadic at best. He found his coat and dug through the pockets to retrieve it. The battery was down to one bar. He would need to charge it soon. The name Tina Guilford was displayed as the incoming call. He'd suspected her of cheating on him for several months before they separated. A week after the divorce became final, she announced her engagement to a man named Barry. What, he said flatly as he answered the phone. Daddy? Came the tiny voice of his daughter on the other end of the line. Oh, hey darling, how are you? He said, softening his tone. I'm good. Where are you at? I'm just at Uncle Vincent's cabin. What are you up to? Just playing with my new dolls Barry got me. That's nice, Ken said, trying not to grit his teeth. Hey, I have an idea. How would you like it if I brought you here to stay at the cabin with me this weekend? I think you'd like it. It's in a big forest with lots of trees and flowers and cute little animals. It's just like from the fairy tales I used to read you before bedtime. Would you like that? There was an awkward pause on the other end of the line. He heard someone talking to her in the background, most likely Tina. She returned a few moments later. Well, I was wondering if it would be okay if I went with Mommy and Barry to Wonderworld this weekend. Then I can go to the cabin with you next time. She said, attempting to be diplomatic. A torrent of rage tore through Ken. It was just like Tina and Barry to try to screw him out of his weekend with his daughter. He already only got her every other weekend as it was. He knew it was their goal to cause her to not want to spend any time with him, and they were doing a damn good job of it. I don't know about that, Alice. I haven't gotten to see you in over two weeks. Don't you want to spend some time with your old dad? He said, hoping to shame her into coming to stay with him, then feeling guilty about the tactic. I do, but... I really want to go to Wonderworld. I've, I've never been there, and they have a ride named after me. It's called Alice in Wonderworld, like that story with the rabbit and the smiling cat. The pleading was obvious, and Ken knew he had lost the battle before she'd even called. We'll see, darling. Let me speak to your mother, please. Okay, Daddy, but I really, really want to go, Alice added before passing the phone off. Ken sat in the silent cabin for over an hour, fuming. The conversation with Tina had erupted into a full-blown argument, he had ultimately lost. If he refused to let Alice go with them to Wonderworld, then she would be unhappy the whole time she was here with him. And if he let her go, then he'd willingly given up his weekend with her, but at least she would be happy. He ended up deciding he didn't want to stoop to their level by punishing Alice with his own selfishness. He was beginning to feel resigned to the fact they were going to eventually edge him out of her life altogether. He felt defeated and alone in the world. He slammed his fist on the table hard enough to knock off the envelope he had been examining before the call. When he retrieved it, the letters were gone. It was blank. I must seriously be losing it, he muttered, wadding the envelope into a ball which he cast across the room. Peace pushed away the turmoil that plagued Ken after the phone call as soon as he arrived at the clearing. He sat before the tree, his pain and loneliness seemingly whisked away by the gentle breeze that flowed through the clearing. He was there for a while, kneeling down, facing the tree before he spoke. I wish I could stay here forever, Ken said to the tree, but he knew that was impossible. Soon he'd have to leave the cabin in the forest and return to the relentless torments of the world. The peace Ken had enjoyed fled him. He slumped with his back against the tree and began to sob. A sharp pain pierced his hand. He snatched it up from the ground to examine what had caused it. A small chunk of flesh had been bitten out of his palm. He looked down where his hand had been to witness a strange-looking ant-like thing skittering away, climbing up the base of the tree. He tried to grab it, but it moved too quickly. He was unsure what it was. It certainly wasn't like any insect he'd seen before. It was the correct size for one, but it was distorted, with a pair of unusual humps making up most of its body. Its movement reminded Ken of a fast-moving inchworm. Whatever it was, it disappeared into the crevice of the tree before he could examine it closer. With the distraction of the insect gone, Ken returned his attention to the bleeding hole in his hand. It stung and bled more than he thought it should. The bite must have been deep. Figuring he should return to the cabin to tend to the wound, Ken started to exit the clearing. Then he remembered the dream from the previous night. He moved back to stand before the tree once more staring at its garish split the thought of reaching inside caused his stomach to turn there was no telling what if anything would breach house but he was certain it would be unpleasant to find out still the dream had seemed so poignant he felt he must at least try pulling a handkerchief out of his back pocket ken wrapped it around his uninjured hand as best he could and then gently eased into the white fungus opening it was warm and damp inside like something alive He pushed his arm through the layers of pulpy murk he assumed must be mold. In his mind, he imagined glistening snakes slithering about within, preparing to sink their fangs deep into his hand at any moment. It was almost enough to halt his attempt, but he closed his eyes and strove on. He stretched down as far as he could. By the time he was up to his shoulder, he could feel something wedged inside the orifice. He wrapped his fingers around it. It was solid, but slimy after struggling a while to try to free it he succeeded and managed to pull the object up in his hands he held a wooden book covered in a putrid-smelling greasy dark fluid it looked exactly the same as the one from his dream he ran his fingers over the letters engraved on its cover black reach he said aloud a smile breaking wide across his face it was getting too dark for him to read in the forest so ken tucked the book tight against his chest and left the clearing tonight he would have something new to read by the time he made it back to the cabin settled into bed it was after midnight he had spent hours in the forest clearing now that he was away from it he wondered why he had done so and started to think it might be best if he left the cabin sooner than he planned it seemed to be having an effect on him that he didn't think was particularly positive once he started to read the book all those thoughts dissipated Upon opening its wooden cover, he found large, black, handwritten words on an aged-brown paper, green mold stained several parts of its surface. Still, for having been stored inside a dead tree for presumably a long time, it was remarkably well preserved. It looked to be about eighty pages long, and although weathered, none of the pages appeared brittle. Ken flipped to the first page and began to read. Those who wish to join the collective of
2: the Black Reach must willingly cast aside their individual bodies, minds, and souls. They must
4: forget all that the world has taught them,
2: purge themselves of their desires and sorrows, and be consumed by the words of the Black Reach. Once you are joined to the whole, you will cease to be driven by your own wishes or fears, and will instead add all that you are to the collective in order to continue spelling out the text of the Great Tome. Your thoughts, knowledge, skills, and ability will be added to those of the Collective, as were your fears, weaknesses, and pain. They will be distributed amongst the whole of the Black Reach. You will no longer have to shoulder your burdens alone,
4: but instead will have the unwavering support of the Collective of the Black Reach. Once you are joined to the Collective, your name will be added to the Great town. The words resonated with Ken. All he felt anymore was heartache and loneliness. With the divorce, his loss of friends, and the inevitable loss of his daughter's love, to be rid of all that pain would be worth whatever price would be required of him. I want to join the collective, Ken said aloud. Please, I want to join the collective of Black Reach, he implored louder. When nothing happened, he returned his attention to the book. The print on the pages was in several different handwriting styles, but was otherwise the same as those from the envelope message he'd found before. The letters stood higher than any ink he'd seen. He ran his fingers across the page. It hummed, vibrating vaguely warm at his touch, as though it had a pulse. He threw the book from him in shock. It landed with a loud thud beyond the foot of his bed, out of sight. Ken lay there, trying to comprehend what was happening. He'd left the bedroom window open to combat the room's stuffiness. Through it, he noticed the night was still. None of the sounds he'd grown accustomed to hearing from the forest emerged. The silence unnerved him, made him feel watched by something furtive and dark just beyond the wall of trees. He hadn't thought it possible he could fall asleep, but a sudden wave of extreme exhaustion soon overwhelmed him. His dreams returned him to the clearing. The sky, tainted by dark shades of red and orange, swirled to form a nexus centered above the infected tree. It pulsated as thick Black ooze poured from its stretched crevice. The surrounding trees swayed in the wind, casting leaves alight with menacing ferocity. From somewhere a chant arose Black Reach, Black Reach, Black Reach, the bodiless voices intoned. Black jumble mass continued to swarm from the tree, crawling through the forest seemingly without end. The chant grew louder, and thunder rumbled through the night. Ken awoke in a sweat. He glanced at his watch. 9.27 a.m. He hadn't planned on sleeping so late. The book on the floor caught his eye as soon as he got out of bed. He felt a little foolish about how he'd reacted to it the previous night. After all, it was just an old book. He lifted it off the ground and flipped through the pages. The thought struck him that the raised letters were probably done that way so blind people could read it. He touched the page, but this time it felt like any other piece of paper. He flipped through a few more until he noticed something skitter across its surface. Ken jumped back, dropping the book to the floor. One of the strange insects that had bit him by the tree moved across the floor. He was joined by a few others, which escaped the book and ran out of the room. Grabbing a discarded boot, Ken chased after them. When he entered the main room, he saw some of them slip through a crack beside the attic trapdoor in the ceiling. Ken pulled the short rope that dangled from it a set of folded wooden stairs extended down followed by cascading dust and the stench of stale air ken wiped off as much of the dust from his head and shirt as he could and then snatched an electric lantern from the table and began to ascend the creaking steps the attic was floored he was happy to learn although he did have to walk hunched over due to the low ceiling Through a haze of dust particles and stray cobwebs illuminated by his lantern were the silhouettes of several stacked boxes, chests, and occasional piece of furniture. There was a narrow walkway down the center of the stored item. Ken searched with his lantern until he spied the line of weird bugs along the edge of the wall at the far end of the attic. Got you now, you little bastards, Ken said, raising the boot to bring down on them. To his surprise, they all squeezed through a slim opening along the base of the wall. He knelt down with his lantern and soon came to the conclusion that there was a small, nearly invisible door made out of thin wood there. Upon further examination, Ken found that someone had fastened a room at the end of the attic. Feeling along the gap revealed a tiny niche he could get his finger behind, which he used to pull open the secret door. Ken froze at the sight. Inside was a tiny chamber that contained a single skeleton slumped in the corner. It was devoid of flesh. Ken recognized the clothing that hung loosely on its frame as belonging to his uncle. Questions swarmed through Ken's mind. How could his uncle be dead inside a secret room with the door closed? Did someone murder him? If so, was the killer still nearby? And where was his flesh? Sure it would be badly decayed, but there should still be something. The skeleton looked as though it had been picked clean, leaving only the bones behind. Ken staggered backwards out of the room, trying to come to grips with his discovery. He left the attic in a daze, the insects forgotten. He felt dizzy as he went to sit on the edge of his bed. Absently, Ken found his cell phone again, deciding he should call the police. The screen was blank. He'd forgotten to charge it. Damn, he muttered to himself. He sat there a while, running the various possible scenarios over in his head when the sight of the book sparked a thought. He rose from the bed, grabbed it, and flipped to the back the last twenty pages were a long list of names each one of them printed in different handwriting styles the last name to appear in the book was vincent withlow it was written in his uncle's handwriting he touched vincent's name in the book the warmth had returned and once again the page pulsed but ken didn't feel fear this time He'd felt such peace and harmony in the forest before, and had such fond memories of his uncle, he thought perhaps everything had been an attempt by his uncle to try to communicate with him, despite being dead. It wasn't until the words on the page began to move that Ken started to feel the first inklings of fear. The letters that made up his uncle's name began to shift and scuttle across the brown pages. In a clear spot, they rearranged themselves to form a new sentence, the letters W N C. T H fell away, and the word read, One with Evil. Other letters on the page began to scatter and move about. More letters fell away and read, Leave Now. Even though the word Leave was missing a letter, Ken was able to perceive the warning as well as its urgency. But it was too late. The letters from the other names on the page swarmed around his thumb, which touched the strange paper. Ken tried to pull it free, but it wouldn't budge the letters formed a tight circle around his thumb and seemed to be grasping it somehow what the hell ken said perspiration beginning to form on his forehead he pulled harder but the effort was the same sharp pain arced up from his thumb as the letter insects started to bite him ken watched in horror as the blood flowed from his hand onto the book only to be absorbed into the thin veins that now swelled across the throbbing page More three-dimensional letters began to pour out from the sides of the book, all making their way from the other rippling pages of text. When a new wave reached the other letters, they climbed atop each other, crawling higher up Ken's hand, trying to envelop him. Panic gripped Ken. He leapt to his feet, attempting to throw the book, but it wouldn't separate from him. His hand was rapidly becoming encased in the black, writhing mass. Pain lanced up from it, as though stuck inside a blender. He screamed in agony. The letters kept coming. Running from the room, the book, still attached to his pain-racked hand, had thrust the book against the bedroom doorframe. A few of the letters fell to the ground with a stream of blood and thick chunks of purple meat, but he was held fast. He saw the letter E, followed by a couple R, scamper towards his fallen flesh and begin to feast on it. He screamed again as he searched in desperation for something to help free himself from the book and its frenzied letters. Squishing and slurping sounds from his forearm were becoming louder the letters continued to devour him moving higher up his arm ken started to feel he would soon pass out he had to try to save himself before he lost consciousness stumbling across the cabin he threw himself toward the cluttered table knocking most of its contents to the floor as he sprawled across its surface Before his momentum carried him there as well, Ken managed to grab his uncle's large hunting knife with his free hand. Without thinking, he savagely swept the sharp knife blade down the writhing black mass where his arm should be. He screamed again as a huge chunk of partially devoured flesh fell to the floor with a damp splat, along with several other of the ravenous letter things. Several more disengaged themselves from his arm to pursue the separated meat. Enough of them deserted him that the book fell free. Holding his wounded arm aloft, Ken stared in horror at what remained. His forearm was slick with blood, a large swath of sheared flesh carved from it. At its end were the skeletal remains of his hand, red-soaked with a few clumps of mangled tissue still dangling from it. He let out a whimper of despair. His vision grew fuzzy, and his mind began to recede into unconsciousness. Before it did, Ken saw the swarm of insect-like black letters massing towards his prone body. From somewhere in the forest, he heard a rumbling chant. Black Reach. Black Reach. Black Reach. The inhumane voices called in unison. With his last thought, Ken realized a new voice was emerging to join the drone that formed the chant. His own. Black Reach. Black Reach. Black Reach.
2: you for letting us hear that, Matt. Tonight's story, The Collective of Black Reach, was originally published, as mentioned in 2008, by Dead Letter Press. It was, at that time, a bonus chapbook for those who purchased the anthology Bound for Evil, Curious Tales of Books Gone Bad. As mentioned, Black Reach marked the debut of the Talbot Forest— a place whose inherent darkness warps the people and structures within its borders. To date, Matt has written multiple stories featuring this place. One of them, The Shadow Man of Moonspine Bridge, can be found in the anthology Indiana Horror 2012 from James Ward Kirk Fiction. In addition to writing fiction... Matt writes articles highlighting some of the legendary names in the field of horror at his new blog, Horror Delve, which can be found at Matt Cowan Horror, well, one word, dot WordPress dot com, and that will be on our home page at Tales to Terrify dot com. Matt lives with his wife Lynn and stepson Brett in Lawrence, Indiana, where he works for the local water utility. And, he says, he is crafting evermore tales to fill the void left by his long-lost nightmares. The Collective of Black Reach was narrated tonight by Drake Vaughn. Most recently, Drake Vaughn was heard as the author of Dolls in show number 76, here at Tales to Terrify. For over a decade, Drake has been employed in numerous facets of the entertainment industry. He began sounding the depths of that which he intends to profess when he made a move to New York City. There, he worked in film production on both creative and technical ends of the business. And while so working, he began publishing short stories, selling them at the time to independent zines. He also produced the successful online sketch comedy show Nothing's On. His viral videos have garnered millions of views. Drake now lives in Santa Monica, California, and writes full-time. His novel, The Zombie Generation, is now available, published by Dead Orb Press. Thanks again, Drake. And that, children of the night, will be that. I would have you be upstanding. I would have you be up-and-doing bright and chipper, I would have you be all of those things that precede my saying, be off with you. Who knows what you'll find in the streets tonight, on your way home. The clouds are scudding by like valkyries in the moonlight. And if you take the long, the dark, and the scenic route home, a route that might take you through Lincoln Park to the south or through the forested acreage of Graceland Cemetery if you're heading north, you're sure to hear soft wings sweeping overhead, the rustle of small feet in the falling leaves and hard claws in the grasses. Ah, yes. Chicago. Our motto, Herbs in Horto, city in a garden it's also a city with a forest that rises throughout take a spin through the urban woods why don't you it's worth the experience to hear the sounds of nighttime predation the coyotes howl the cry of the rabbit borne aloft on talons It's worth steeping yourselves in those moments just before bed and pleasant dreams. Hmm?
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about... There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. ...about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.